Hello. Before we get underway, a quick reminder that I do have a crowdfunder running through until the end of the month, the 30th of November 2023. Uh, please consider, please, uh, look, why not pause before you listen to the pod, uh, go to the 9pmedic.com slash summer 2023, have a look at the deal. If you could contribute, that would be lovely. The following episode of the 9pm edict contains international politics, spies, international paranoia, high-speed railways, and crustaceans. Saturday the 18th of November 2023, the Spring Series comes to an end today, or does it? Either way, uh, we have a very special guest indeed. It's Yun Jiang, who's the inaugural China Matters Fellow at the Australian Institute of International Affairs. So guess what we're talking about? Yes, it's China. In this episode, we talk about Australia's relationship with China and related issues. More Australians are concerned about a a China's invasion of Australia than Taiwanese uh, concern about China's invasion of Taiwan. We hear how China has changed over the last nine years. In Shanghai, cars actually obey traffic laws now. It's amazing. And lobsters. Yes, so many lobsters. I know, I'm actually really concerned that uh, the lobster pricing in Australia might go up. Hello, I'm Still Gary, and this is the 9pm Australian Lobster in China with Yun Jiang. It's not all about lobsters. There are a lot of lobsters, though. Quite a lot of lobsters. Yunjiang, first, I really want to thank you for writing such a fine summary in your article, Can Australia and China Have a Stable Relationship? I will, of course, dear listener, link to it on the podcast website. And thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you. Thank you. Really, really great to be here. Now, you began your report by saying, and I, and I quote, a long-term, stable relationship between Australia and the PRC will be challenging because the PRC believes Australia is not capable of pursuing an independent foreign policy and remains hostage, there's a word, to its alliance <laughs> with the US. How true do you think? I mean, that's the view you've gathered from the Chinese academics you spoke with the other month. Mm -hmm. How true do you think that is? Okay, so, so there are... Two things that uh, I need to clarify exactly what you're asking. Okay. <laughs> One is how true do I think that's what the Chinese government thinks? Or do you mean how true I personally think that uh, uh, Australia is, uh, you know, always follows the US? Which one are you actually referring to? Well, I will be asking both those questions, I think, obviously. Uh, but firstly, firstly, one about the Chinese government. So I think from the Chinese government's perspective, it is certainly uh, very true. Uh, you know, uh, in, in state media, uh, uh, such as Global Times, the infamous Global Times, I do not suggest uh, people <laughs> really read it. It's a bit like, a, I don't know, some tabloid newspaper, except it's state-backed. Um, the Daily Mail, but owned by the government. <laughs> Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> that, that's a very good characterization of it. Um, so, so they, they do talk about, you know, uh, Australia being a running dog of the United States and things like that, which they use the over-the-top language. I, I don't think that the Chinese government or the you know, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, their Ministry of Foreign Affairs, necessarily think to that extent. But I think they do think that, um, you know, one, Australia is a obviously ally of the United States, and two, um, from what Australia has done. And certainly Malcolm Turnbull has uh, talked about this in the past, um, about you know, the 100 years of mateship that Australia basically always followed the United States into uh, every major conflict since, uh, I think, World War One or World War II. Um, so from their perspective, that's what Australia has always been. And you add to that, and this is, this is something that I've thought about a lot because I've been interested in military history and international conflict and so on. We're more and more seeing every issue to do 
with China through a national security lens, and that's damaged trade and people-to-people links. And, I mean, we have seen that. Lobster wars, barley wars, wine wars. Well, I think the word wars have been used uh, too liberally in this case. I've just done it. I've just done it, haven't I, by referring to it as a war. (laughs) So I'm to blame too. But but we we are. We are constantly seeing China as this huge global threat. Uh, that's right, yes. Although I think the uh, the examples you have mentioned are not necessarily uh, a good example of uh, this, uh, you know, seeing everything through a national security lens no, because no. Uh, even Chinese government don't think that importing lobsters from Australia is a national security issue. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, or, or, I mean, wine does that make people intoxicated, but uh, I don't think uh, Australian wine is uh, more uh, dangerous than American wine or Chilean wine, <laughs> for that matter. <laughs> um, but certainly um, in both countries, uh, I think investment is uh, one area that's a bit more prominent than trade. Uh, mm. So uh, when, you know, foreign investment, when, when Chinese companies want to invest in Australia, for example, um, the Australian government and the population obviously is very concerned about uh, selling off our assets or companies to China and what they could potentially be used for. And same in China. Um, you know, when uh, foreign companies uh, invest in China and there's, uh, you know, there, there are definitely restrictions in how foreign companies can can go into the Chinese market. And the Chinese government is also very, very concerned about the national security implications of these types of um, investment as well. Is China seeing things like food security uh, through a national security lens from the Chinese perspective? Yes, definitely. And uh, perhaps a bit more so than uh, in the past as well. The Chinese government has said that it wants to be self-sufficient uh, in food, uh, in grains. So, so not just, so it's very much focuses on grains, staple grains, not, not just, no. There's not lobster and wine. <laughs> not lobsters, exactly, not lobsters. Um, uh, there, there's a, perhaps a fear that, you know, what could happen if a conflict was to break out and then uh, people have uh, uh, a shortage of food, right? So what they've been doing is some quite drastic measures, I think. Um, they're restricting uh, use of land. So uh, the land that's being used for grain production, they're restricting from being converted to, say, fruit production or um, fisheries. Um and they are actually turning back a little bit what they've previously been doing, which is turning agricultural land into forest. And that was for environmental reasons. Um, so they've been rolling back a little bit and been converting some of the uh, forest to agricultural land um, for food productions. Uh, so the, the food security is a big priority of the government. Now, to go back to the other side of the question about Australia's foreign policy... Do you personally see us <laughs> as as deputy sheriff for the Pacific region, or I think as George W. Well, Bush once said, <laughs> that's a very sensitive topic. Uh, considering I assume most of our audience will be Australians. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> um. So I I, I don't. I think most of the-, the audience of this particular podcast will go. Yeah, we're a puppet. <laughs> and they, uh, they're well, probably well, right. Not to the extent right that Chinese government uh, or the, the people in China thinks. Um, I think to a lot of people in China, uh, basically, if you follow the United States, uh, you are <laughs> you don't have a an independent dog foreign lackey. policy, yeah. Uh, yeah. which I, I that's not something I agree with. But look, any countries, any country, especially you know, Australia is a mid- middle power. We're not a great power. We are a country. When we make foreign policy decisions, when we make defense decisions and national security decisions, obviously we need to take into consideration the preferences and the reactions of great powers such as the United States. Um, and all countries in the world do that. Mm. But for Australia, because we are much closer to the United States, and we do have this fear of abandonment, which, uh, you know, uh, late Alan Ginger wrote about in the book, uh, The Fear of Abandonment, where we are uh, perhaps a little bit more scared than other countries because we feel like we're, you know, an Anglosphere country uh, in an Asian region, and Mm -hmm. we do still 
in a lot of sense, trying to seek uh, security from Asia rather than in Asia, and at least in uh, you know under certain governments, that's been more strongly expressed than perhaps uh, other times. How how diplomatically uh, put. <laughs> And, and you can see it reflected in, for example, our United Nations votes. Uh, when we make and when we vote at United Nations, uh, we do vote with an eye to uh, what would mean how would the United States see our votes and and decisions like that. So yeah, um, you know, I, I don't want to say we are a puppet of the United States, uh, but uh, we're taking into consideration their preferences. <laughs> How very nice. And I should should mention a recent example of that voting at the United Nations mm. with the United States was uh, on the Israel-Hamas situation where uh, the call for a ceasefire, the United States abstained from that vote, as did Australia, and they were the only two nations not to vote one way or the other, which is interesting, shall we say. Now, in a piece you wrote for the Asia Times earlier this year, back in April, uh, they put the headline on it, Australia's China illiteracy has dangerous consequences. Now, I know the author doesn't always write the headline, but will you, will you go as strong as to say illiteracy and dangerous? Uh, I probably didn't roll that. No, you're right. I didn't write that headline. <laughs> I didn't think so. It's a bit fun. <laughs> but but the, yes, the lack of uh, Asian uh, literacy and capability uh, is uh, can be dangerous. Um, one for government decision making. If there was a lack of capability within government, and I would argue that there is. Um, and I have written about this issue before. Uh, one of the reasons is that we are not really utilizing the capability and skills that's been present in our multicultural communities. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, our uh, federal government is still uh, less diverse than the community. Um, and very politely put. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one thing. And the other thing is also, uh, I guess, you know, I, I, I don't want to blame the media for it, uh, but uh, there is uh, sometimes there's a lot of misunderstanding that's been um, perpetrated uh, through media. And I have, can think of really one very recent example, actually, that being brought to my attention just uh, this week is when um, Albanese visited China and mm-hmm. some commentators or perhaps the government officials uh, referred to him as a handsome boy. Uh, which uh, in Chinese was shuai uh, ge, which is a you know really a nice term. Uh, it's definitely not derogatory. Um, it's just like handsome guy, and and actually it's a, a bit overused for my taste. Almost everyone in China is referred to as either shuai ge, handsome guy, or many beautiful woman. No matter your age or appearance or anything, you are either a handsome guy or a beautiful woman or lao bat boss. Just the way people refer to other people, really, Mm. in a nice way. But um, some media outlets have said that it's a derogatory because uh, it's being translated as handsome boy, and boy is obviously Uh. uh, derogatory. Mm. Uh, And it's those little things which keep making a a difference. And and this leads me to an example I wanted to play you. Now, this is from uh, July this year. It's a report. uh, This one's from Sky News. It's about something that happens uh, with every military exercise around the world, and it's perfectly normal. But this is 20 seconds that we keep hearing again and again. Australia's Defence Force is warning China to abide by international laws after the discovery of a surveillance vessel off Australia's east coast. Talisman Sabre starts today, the two-week exercise designed to strengthen Australia's military ties with the United States and test warfighting capabilities. Now, this rhetoric of spy ships, as I say, everyone looks at everyone else's military exercises and when mm-hmm. they say it's off Australia's east coast, you go, yeah, by about 400 kilometres. <laughs> I mean, even if you want to go for like an economic zone, which is what, 200 miles or is the standard distance, but it's not. It's international waters. What, mm-hmm. are, you, what are you having a sook about? <laughs> Yes, unfortunately, uh, I think uh, in a lot of instances, it is a media beat up, you know, uh, 
countries can have ships in international waters, and that's just the way it is. And uh, you know, if you have a good relationship with a the country, then you will say, you know, you won't say anything because they are just normal. That's just they're normal. just there. Yes. <laughs> just there. Um, countries do that to each other. When this happened, for example, I actually looked up the distances involved. And when they're saying, oh, it's off Australian waters, it was the same as the distance from London to Berlin. Oh, wow. You, you know, it was just, what are, you, what are you on about? You know, a canal boat in Berlin is suddenly off British waters. You know, get get real. And at the same time, of course, the United States is running freedom of navigation exercises through the South China Sea. Australia is part of that in the air. Uh, we know the Royal Australian Air mm. Force is, is running flights there. And for us, that's a normal thing to do and right and proper. But China does the same thing and it's suddenly terribly scary Chinese ships off our coast. That's right. That's uh, that's exactly the problem with reporting. Uh, in a lot of instances um, in this country, uh, you know, in both cases, if they abide by international law, then they should be fine. They should be accepted. Uh, but uh, there is often a double standard where when one country does it, um, we accept that as right, and when another country does it, we see that as a problem. Exactly, and there we were warning them to stick to international law, and it's like, well, they, they do. They usually – all right, I, I should say that there has been an instance of, of a Chinese surveillance ship, uh, well, shining a targeting laser on Royal Australian Air Force aircraft, which was, oh, it might blind the – like, yeah, again – for those of us who grew up in the Cold War, this sort of thing was happening every day. Like, get over it. It's uh, but surely we don't want to, you know, <laughs> compare ourselves to the worst Nor of the time. Normalise the Cold War. Yeah, perhaps that's not a good plan. Um, we'll come back to Australia and China uh, and those issues and Albanese's uh, visit in a minute. But I want to briefly talk about your idea of a joint China-Australia study centre. I quite like this. Explain more. It's not quite a joint one. Um, oh, okay. So, they, uh, so this is um, modelled after the United States Study Centre. So I was Which actually is at the um, University of Sydney, I should yes, say. And I've, yes, my uh, my Sydney, interactions yes. with them have been fabulous over the years. They really know their stuff. Oh, of course, yes, yes, yes. Very, very professional and facts based. Um, but I was actually surprised to find out uh, that. You know, the United Studies, uh, uh, United States Study Center is uh, explicitly, uh, the, its vision is explicitly about strengthening the, uh, the bilateral relationship with the United States. Mm. Um, so it's not just about studying the relationship, which is, of course, a more neutral term, but strengthening the relationship, which I thought oh, was interesting um, that you have a specific vision to, you know, achieve a certain aim. But there's no equivalent to uh, that sort of vision for our relationship with China at the moment. There is no um, an organization that's dedicated to strengthening uh, our relationship with China that is, you know, funded by uh, government with uh, a significant ongoing grant or an or sort of an endowment. Um, I feel like, you know, if we have one with one great power, then there's no problem with us having a similar initiative with another great power. Makes perfect sense to me. Yun, you said, and this is coming back to a personal <laughs> note, I, I think, you said in Lowy Institute's interpreter that you were in China last month, by which you meant September when you were mm -hmm. working on your report. First time there in nine years, and you said China after nine years is a completely different country. What was different? Ah, uh, well, first I want to say that you know I did want to uh, go to China earlier, but uh, uh, I was uh, in the working <laughs> government. And I uh, was actually not allowed to go um, last time ah, I asked. <laughs> and then so, we had the COVID And then situation. we had the COVID, yes. Oh, finally, finally, after <laughs> nine years, I couldn't believe that either. Um, I, I, and, yes, nine years is a long time in any country. You know, even mm. Canberra 
has changed. <laughs> Hasn't it just? Yes. <laughs> now there's more Asian restaurants, at least. Uh, so I'm yes. very happy about that. Uh, but yes, China obviously has changed even more. It's like decades of change, you know. Um, what has changed? Well, one thing I've uh, noticed a lot is this reliance on mobile technology. Everyone mm. has a mobile phone glued to the hand all the time. You know, whether you're paying something, you have to use your mobile phone, you're buying something or uh, entertainment, everything is through mobile phone. Um, so most people buy things through uh, apps, uh, app-based mm-hmm. e-commerce technology. So you got, you know, Taobao or JD or Pinduoduo. Um Rather than through, so so obviously online shopping is pretty big in uh, Australia as well. Actually, I do all my shopping <laughs> through online mm. nowadays yeah. too. Uh, but you know, I think in Australia we still mostly use websites. Um, but in China, they use uh, apps on their mobile phone more. Um, so their website is actually really hard to navigate. It's uh, it's almost impossible. Um, so recently there was a shopping day, double 11. So 11th of November was their shopping day. It was a huge sale. Uh, all the e-commerce platforms um, put out uh, I, and I was uh, caught up by the euphoria and ordered a few things as well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They're they still on, on a ship from uh, China uh, to Australia. Um, so what's a, the, the, the backbone of this, all this, of course, is delivery drivers. So you see, you know, delivery drivers everywhere. They're delivering uh, goods. They're delivering food, food delivery as well. Um, and uh, it's a very hyper-competitive, uh, I guess, a, job, a hyper-competitive job and also a hyper-competitive society. Um, people will get, uh, they expect uh, delivery to be very, very fast. Um, and the, those drivers are under a lot of pressure to perform and they can get their pay docked. So there's a lot of labor um, issues around that as well. Um, in terms of other things visible on the street, you can see a lot of share bikes. <laughs> share uh-huh. bikes uh, is becoming, I mean, you know, in Canberra, we have uh, those uh, e-scooters. I oh, tried of them once or twice. they're not bikes in Canberra, they're scooters. <laughs> yes. So Canberra. They're, they're, they're legal in Canberra, uh, but oh, they're very expensive. Right. They're very, very expensive. I, I tried them once or twice, but share bikes in China, uh, they're very cheap and they you can go anywhere. They're very nice. Uh, electric vehicles are pretty big now in China as well um, through government incentives such as uh, regist- free registration subsidies. Um Oh, so nice. there's big, huge uptake on sh- on electric bikes, but s- strangely, people there are not as concerned about climate change as uh, people in Australia. So people, you know, they they use these like you know uh, share bikes or electric vehicles for personal convenience, and they are concerned about things like pollution, which is very you know it's directly visible. But climate change wise, people are not really talking about it that much. So climate change is more. Top down. That's interesting. Even given the the floods and things that have yes. happened recently, and and other extreme weather conditions, I would have thought. But then you know, I'm naively romantic about people's ability to think through big issues. I I would have thought that would <laughs> that would have made a difference. Yeah, I think it's also. Well, I mean, partly the government does not really talk to. In domestic media, doesn't talk that much about climate change either. Uh, whenever there's floods and things like that, you know, people are obviously very worried, but they don't really connect that to climate change uh, on the global scale. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so a lot of the climate change efforts is more top-down driven. So it's driven by the government when it talks about, you know, climate change cooperation with other countries and uh, a push for uh, electrification of vehicles that's more driven by government than through perhaps in Australia, we're more used to bottom-up approach where, you know, there's a lot of uh, grassroots campaign uh, in Australia about climate change, uh, whereas it, it feels sometimes it feels like the government is uh, – uh, sometimes it feels like they're dragging feet in Australia. <laughs> um, so it's a bit of a reverse. Um, and finally, I just want to say that <laughs> well, another big uh, difference I've noticed, especially in Shanghai, so I only was in Beijing and Shanghai, I have to caveat that. Uh, mm. In Shanghai, cars actually obey traffic laws now. 
Yeah, that was a big change. What? Cars <laughs> obeying traffic laws in Shanghai. Yes, now, now I've not been to Shanghai, but I know its reputation. <laughs> they uh, they stop for you at the pedestrian crossing. <laughs> but you know why? You know why? The reason is everyone telling me is that it's because they get fined a lot. There's oh, of cameras course we- everywhere. Traffic I knew you were going to everywhere. say the cameras. <laughs> We've got license plate and face recognition, and you will you will have the fine out of your bank account by the time you finish your journey. I don't. That's right. <laughs> but it's good for pedestrians. <laughs> I'm reminded, as an aside, I think it was in 2007, and I was with my then partner in Bangkok, who is Thai or was. Is, he is tight. We were partners. Um, and we were in the northeastern suburbs of Bangkok where the very first pedestrian crossing was installed in Bangkok. Oh. And it had instructions on it for how to press the button and wait mm-hmm. for the green light. And I, of course, did that. And uh, traffic side turns red. Little green man comes up to walk across. <laughs> I walk boldly out into the street, nearly get <laughs> oh, killed. Yeah. And he just laughed and said, why did you think anyone would pay any attention to this red light? <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't tested it since. I have been back to Bangkok several times since, but I haven't tested that theory. <laughs> but it's like, come on, come on. Okay, that's uh, as an aside. I think on that note we'll take a brief break and do the <laughs> housekeeping. Earlier in this podcast, I attributed a quote about sheriffs to George W. Bush. Well, it turns out, my God, time flies when you're having fun. It was Daddy Bush, Bush the first, George H.W. Bush, um, who said it 20 years ago, back in October 2003. Um, I'll read from a, a Nine Facts paper a report at the time. A compliment from US President George Bush describing Australia as a sheriff put the government on the spot yesterday. That would have been the 16th of October 2003 and caused international ripples. (laughs) Sounds like an ice cream. Uh, Mr Bush's comment uh, rekindled the controversy over a characterisation of Australia as the Deputy Sheriff of the US in the Asia-Pacific region. And who said that? That was, of course, Prime Minister John Howard said it in the Bulletin magazine uh, several years beforehand. Yes, <laughs> John Howard described Australia as America's Deputy Sheriff for the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, And, of course, obviously people said, yes, regional leaders said, yep, Australia just does America's bidding in the region. Uh, Now, Mr Bush was asked whether he saw Australia as a deputy sheriff, and he said, we don't see it, Australia, as a deputy sheriff. We see it as a sheriff. There's a difference. Equal partners, friends and allies. Oh, I should say partners. Yeah. There's nothing deputy about this relationship, said George Bush the first 20 years ago. It's a great fit to what we've just been talking about today, isn't it? Now, the next episode on this podcast will be not telling, not sure. Officially, this was uh, the last episode in the spring series and then the summer series will will happen once we've worked out the results of the current crowdfunder. But I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking there might be a seventh episode in the spring series. So uh, stay tuned for that. And yes, the crowdfunder, I am currently running a crowdfunder, the 9pm uh, summer series 2023. Uh, there is uh, just under two weeks to run, and we are 39% of the way to target one. Now, I really want to get this. I want to do a summer series. I did not fund the spring series in any way, so I'm kind of faking this. And just quietly, one of my clients um, has cut back on the work uh, that's happening there. So I'm kind of, well, I won't say freaking out, but it's... It's a pressure. So uh, if we can uh, get this 
campaign moving. Uh, look, 39% of the way to target one with uh, a little under two weeks to go is very good. But look, please do. Um, the 9pm edict.com slash summer 2023. The 9pm slash summer 2023. If you can contribute, please do. That would be wonderful. If you already contribute, look, I, I, I already love you dearly and there's plenty of people who contribute regularly in other ways. So you're fantastic. If you can't contribute, and I totally understand if you can't, you know, that's how life is sometimes and, you know, I hope you're doing well. Uh, but if you do enjoy the podcast, please just tell your friends that it exists. The more people listen, well, the better, right? The 9pmedic.com slash 20, no, summer 2023. I've, it's You'll figure it out. The 9pmedic.com slash summer 2023. Yes, that's it. Uh, and now back to Yun Jiang. Well, as regular listeners to this podcast will know, uh, we choose trigger words, selecting them uh, from the glass jar of transparency, uh, folded up pieces of paper with a word written on it, sent in by a supporter, in the hope that it will trigger a conversation. Now, we'll ignore that for today because Yun, there's one that has been sent in especially for you. Oh. And it's an obvious one. It is... Taiwan, or as okay. we say in sport, Chinese Taipei. Oh, yes. Where are we up to here? Nothing has changed for 40 years. Has anything? Well, there's election coming. Uh, in Taiwan. But I haven't really been following uh, very closely about that one. Um, uh, we have seen China more aggressively running what we might call freedom of navigation oh, yes. flights over the oh. uh, Taiwan Strait. Uh, brackets, dear listener, I'll link to some stuff on that. The uh, yep. PLA Air Force has been building up what are really quite uh, – what what, are, what is called in the, the field these days a strike package of bombers and escort package. fighters okay. and, and uh, electronic warfare aircraft yep. – and sending them right up to the line and sometimes even yeah. crossing the line into uh, what Taiwan has declared to be their air defence zone. Yeah. And that has been escalating. What does this mean? Well, obviously uh, Beijing is trying to send a signal. Uh, it's trying to pressure uh, the Taiwanese government uh, this usually comes, uh, you know, whenever, for example, a foreign dignitary is to visit Taiwan and you hear this type of uh, uh, actions escalate as well. Um, so it's definitely trying to send a strong signal to, uh, to the government there. But strangely, you know, when you talk to people in Taiwan, they are strangely not so concerned about this. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I guess there's a sense that they are used to it a little bit. I uh, you know, um, so, yeah. I mean, the, the language coming out of China has always been so aggressive and bellicose. It has been for many decades. Uh, so perhaps they are getting used to it. But, of course, they are also ramping up preparation. We are seeing, you know, they are doing a lot more on the military front. They are preparing more for uh, for a possible conflict in the future. So clearly the government is more concerned and uh, as some would say, and perhaps the Australian government and the US government would say that's a good thing. Um, but the people uh, are not as concerned, like if we think about if the Chinese government was to you know, fly fly their fighters to the Australian, close Australian airspace, uh, uh, you know, every few days. So we will be very concerned. Uh, but the Taiwanese people appear to be quite <laughs> resilient. To say, yes, we, we panic about a ship <laughs> a few hundred kilometres away, you know. They, 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 they heavens, are more resilient aircraft. than us, definitely. Uh, so uh, there, there are also polls that uh, indicate that uh, perhaps it's uh, it, this Comment on state affairs both in Australia and in Taiwan that uh, more Australians are concerned about a, a, a China's invasion of Australia than Taiwanese uh, concern about China's invasion of Taiwan. Which is so not a thing. It's A, China wouldn't want to. B, 
No one has the capability to invade Australia. Not even the United States could pull that off just for, for sheer logistical capability. Actually, invading Taiwan is also very difficult. And yes, that's, yes, uh, yes. that's probably one thing that is, uh, you know, in favour that uh, it's, it would be amphibious uh, uh, invasion and that's notoriously difficult. They have to cross a strait, which is, uh, you know, quite turbulent. So they're also restricting what time of the year they could do that. Um, so invading Taiwan is not an easy feat. Um, and, uh, and of course, the Chinese government knows that. So that's why I think... Uh, the Chinese government would prefer to put a lot of pressure on Taiwan through anything that's not a direct military invasion, mm. um, cyber attacks, foreign interference, and they've done all that. Uh, but a uh, military invasion is, of course, extremely challenging, even for a great power like China. So I don't think we need to worry about that in the near future. I, look, let's move on from Taiwan um, and, and return Return to uh, Australian matters. Well, two weeks ago, um, Anthony Albanese became the first Australian Prime Minister to visit China in seven years. Yes, the last time was Malcolm Turnbull in 2016. And doesn't doesn't that seem like a different era? Um and can you imagine Xi Jinping having to deal with Malcolm Turnbull? I'm sure they got on well. Any, anyway, Albo was there two weeks ago. Here's how the ABC's David Spears reported on that visit. A smile, a warm handshake and more than an hour of friendly discussion. This was a concerted effort by both leaders to put years of tension to bed and focus on the positives. Come on, now, the China-Australia relationship has embarked on the right path of improvement and development. I'm heartened to see that. A healthy and stable China-Australia relationship serves the common interests of our two countries and two peoples. The Prime Minister did raise some of the difficult issues in the relationship, including the ongoing detention of Australian writer Yang Hengjun, human rights in China and the need for stability in the region. But. He says he doesn't want these differences to define the relationship. On the trade front, the Prime Minister is confident that China will now remove the remaining sanctions it's imposed on wine, lobster and beef. And he says the sanctions already removed have seen trade with China boosted by nearly $6 billion. I know, I'm actually really concerned that uh, the lobster pricing in Australia might go up. Absolutely. Because we've had that'd be a terrible. I know we've had such I beautiful mean, for cheap lobster for for several years now. Thank you, China. It's been wonderful. Yeah, I, it's. I mean, it's bad for the lobster farmers, obviously, but uh, for for consumers of lobster like myself, um, it has been a great run. Yeah. Well, there you go. I, be, I better go and buy more lobsters before <laughs> it goes back up again. Putting putting lobster diplomacy aside, what do you think? Uh, Albanese accomplished in this visit, apart from just being the first Australian Prime Minister there in seven years? Well, the visit itself is an accomplishment, and I think many people have said that, and I would agree with that. It signals an unfreezing of the relationship, not necessarily, you know, improving drastically, but has unfrozen, so uh, that itself is an achievement. Um, and there was some news came out pretty recently that apparently Australia is expecting all trade sanctions to be lifted by Christmas. Mm. So that would be great for the Australian exporters, mm -hmm. especially in those certain industries that's affected. Um, and But in the, also in the lead up to the visit, we saw, you know, the uh, return of Chen Lei. That was obviously uh, a really difficult issue for, for Australia as a whole, but especially for her family, for her children. And, and finally, she has come back to Australia uh, to be reunited with her family. So that was a great outcome, um, you know, with the, I'm sure it was uh, uh, the diplomats uh, in uh, now Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade did a great job uh, in the background to make that happen. Mm, and I notice uh, I have in front of me a list of five things that uh, the Guardian decided to list that we learned from the talks. Uh, the case of uh, Young Henju. 
um, was also yes. raised. He's uh, described as a uh, Australian writer and democracy activist. Those last two words mean obviously he's very much on the radar of the Ministry of State Security uh, in China. Yeah, but also, um, I mean, he's Australian uh, and we should definitely ask for uh, his release, uh, but he's definitely also on the radar of Ministry of State uh, Security not because, not just because he was a democracy activist, but also uh, he was uh, employed by the Chinese government uh, previously as well. Ah. Uh, so he, yeah, so he he had. Uh, I'm guessing he's been on the radar of the Chinese government for a while, uh, unfortunately. Yes, which makes life a lot harder. And on a, a related note to that, I, I forgot to ask in the earlier uh, part of our conversation about the case. Uh, where it is claimed that a couple of months ago in Australia, oh no, a Chinese academic visiting Australia was approached by ASIO uh, and uh, had his phone seized and he was asked certain pertinent questions and then offered $2,000 to provide information to ASIO about uh, others in his party of visitors. Now, putting aside the fact that to me $2,000 sounds a very cheap bribe to put your life at risk <laughs> for spying <laughs> for another country, they, again, this stuff doesn't help, does it? No, no, it doesn't. Um, now, of course, we, we don't have all the details That's about true. exactly what happened and why it has happened. Uh, it being a uh, security, you know, easy operation, we, we probably never know the full details. Mm. Um but the allegations that that uh, he got his home or where his residence uh, raided while he was visiting Australia, he's got his phone and laptop taken away, uh, and he was offered money to spy for Australia. That was the alleg That's that, the those allegation. are the allegations. Yeah. Uh, we, and we haven't seen a denial, but then ASIO will neither confirm nor deny as is. That's usual right. Practice. But ASIO actually has referred to a recent instance, apparently where. Uh, so in one of the Five Eyes meeting, um, ASIOs mentioned that they disrupted uh, a foreign interference uh, operation uh, plot. Plot, plot, cell, <laughs> plan, conspiracy. <laughs> the allegation from ASIO was that um, a certain academic from China, I think was from China, um, was given a list of topics from the Chinese government. Um, to research on, mm. and that uh, the, the, that Chinese academic asked uh, he, his PhD students to research on these topics. So that's a allegation from ASIO. Uh, that that is interesting because then they would be called sub agents, and that would be referred to as a spy ring in the old Cold War <laughs> terminology. I, oh, again, we don't know anything about this apart from... Yeah, uh, yeah. But also, like, I, I am sure that, you know, those PhD students as well as a Chinese academic will do, most likely will not have access to uh, any uh, classified information. Mm. So uh, I'm guessing they will be uh, using public information for their research. True. Oh, well, cheap labour, PhD students, right? You know... <laughs> <laughs> we don't <laughs> well moving on uh the other five the other the rest of the five things we've mentioned uh young Hinju, uh the expanded trans-pacific partnership now that's the cptp ah, cptp <laughs> okay the c is china the p i assume is philippines C no they are uh, china cptp uh, comprehensive oh <laughs> <laughs> this is awful. <laughs> yeah, so so it used to be called TPP, which uh, you know, uh, much easier to say. Uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yep, much easier to say. But then you, after US left, uh, <laughs> it, it became CPTPP, which is amusing because um, it was all their idea to protect their intellectual property. It was the Disneyland trade agreement, kind of. It, it was. Uh, it was. It was set up to exclude China. Yes, basically. But now it's no longer there, US no longer there, and China wants in. Fair enough. <laughs> um, of course, the, 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 the difficulty is that, oh, well, one is that it's supposed to be a very high standard agreement and there's a question about whether China can achieve that. But the difficulty also is that um, all, mem all existing members have to agree mm. for China to sign up. 
Um, and there are, you know, countries in the grouping that's perhaps not so favorable of that happening. Mm-hmm. Japan uh, being one. <laughs> I was about to say, is it, are you not saying Japan? All right, it is Japan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, so the, the, those are the challenges, of course, uh, China would have to overcome in order to join. Interesting that that came up. Okay, uh, also on the list, Ukraine and Middle East. I think we can skip over that. They're the two big wars going on at the moment. And, of course, uh, there was conversation about that. Lobsters and wine we've already done to Death, although lobsters and wine does sound like a lyric from Hungry Like the Wolf, lobsters and wine. Anyway, and then the leaders' dialogue between Australia and China is back on the agenda. So, yeah, the fact that they spoke for an hour and we we then had trade agreements. And I'm assuming that that one hour of conversation is not like they walked in the garden without their advisors and ended to, you know, agreed to some whole thing, but... That's the formality and it's the hardworking people from Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade who actually do the real work in closed rooms. Oh, yes. I mean, it's uh, probably a whole of a government effort, right? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure other departments are also involved. And, and I was told, you know, at least for for China's side, even little details like how long they're supposed to shake hands for. Oh, um, yes. And things like that, they're, they're all planned out. <laughs> It must be really tedious where I find people saying, oh, you know, elbows flying around all the luxury. It's like, no, it must be the most tedious part of his job. Uh, yeah, well, uh, uh, travelling um, for work is not exactly the same as going on a holiday. Uh, no, I know that for real too. Um, to finish that off, I did find, again, over at the Lowy Institute's The Interpreter, uh, an article, How China's Media Reported the Albanese Visit. Bob Tan wrote that. And I, I'll, I'll note he did quote that, as so he said, the more hawkish tabloid Global Times uh, use uh, the phrase Australia again as a chess piece uh, and Chen Hong, who was the writer there, said, is Australia really ready to play such chess, particularly when it isn't in its best interests? That is the chess of having an independent foreign policy from the United States. Uh, he pointed to AUKUS, the technology sharing agreement, which will deliver Australia some nuclear-powered submarines amongst many other things. Uh, we're, we're talk, there's talk, he didn't mention this, but there's talk, of course, of bringing other nations into AUKUS as well, including ah, Japan. Yes. Uh, and then he noted that uh, Australia must continue trading with China to sustain its rising standard of living. So he reckons China's an irreplaceable market for Australia. I mean, he's, he's got a point, I think. About trade, anyway. Yes. Uh, yes. China is an irreplaceable market globally, really. That's true. You know? um, not just for Australia. It is a second biggest economy. It's got a rising middle class. Um, so, yeah. But also the fact that um, Australia is also at the moment irreplaceable for China. I mean, China would want to diversify um, its imports, just like Australia wants to diversify its exports. Uh, but at the moment, China is still very much reliant on, you know, iron ore and coal mm-hmm. from Australia. Uh. So it's a mutually dependent story, not <sighs> one on, dependent on another. But it's all about the rocks. It continues to be about the rocks, iron ore and coal. And soon. Oh, well, course, soon to be lithium. I was about. Ah, you took the words out of my <laughs> mouth. Yes, lithium as well. <laughs> On that, China and Australia, the two biggest reserves in the world, I think. Um, Look, if we're, if that's our comparative advantage and that uh, uh, powers our increased standard of living, then I don't see anything wrong with it, apart from the fact that, you know, that it could have climate change implications. On, on that, um, yes. And that's something we need to deal with. Yes. yes. That's the great challenge, and I'm sure we'll talk about that much more in the future. Okay, quick fact check. Um, I got the lithium reserve slightly wrong. The order is 
Chile has the biggest reserves of lithium by quite a margin at the moment, uh, followed by Australia at number two, Argentina at number three, China at number four, and uh, has China has about a third of the level of lithium reserves as Australia, and then United States at number five with only half the reserves that China has, and Canada slightly less than the United States. And then it goes Zimbabwe, Brazil, Portugal. Beyond that, the numbers are, are, are tiny. So Chile, Australia, Argentina, China, United States, and Canada in the lithium league table. Should have said the lithium league list. And the thing that we <laughs> – I'm going to try and pronounce it again. Uh, the CPTPP – got it, got it. The CPTPP, which is the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnerships. So it really should be the CPATPP. Um it's a trade agreement between Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Japan, Malaysia, Mexico, New Zealand, Peru, Singapore and Vietnam. And yes, it evolved from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, which was never ratified because the United States pulled out of it. Well, for the first time, freight trains are running between the Chinese regional capital of Kunming and the Laotian capital of Vientiane. China financed the five-year-long railway project as part of its ambitious Belt and Road Initiative. For Laos, the connection represents new opportunity, but at a cost, almost $6 billion in debt for a poor country of around 7 million people. After five years of construction, the Mammoth Project is finally complete. A more than 1,000-kilometer-long railway line connecting southwestern China with the capital of Laos, a central part of Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative. That Deutsche Welle report uh, from Germany is actually from two years ago. Since then, the China-Lao railway has opened for high-speed passenger traffic as well. And last month in Indonesia, the uh, high-speed railway between Jakarta and Bandung was opened as well. I'm envious. Before we talk about the Belt and Road Initiative itself, Yun, you were on the high-speed rail in China, modern high-speed rail. Tell me, modern high-speed rail. Yeah, tell me how good it is <laughs> yes. and I'll cry. <laughs> uh, yes, I was traveling from Beijing to Shanghai. Um, it took four and a half oh. hours. Um, it was very comfortable. Uh, the, I think the top speed was, oh, I can't remember, 350 kilometers per hour? Yeah, it's 350. Um, that one. 350. All right, thank you. Um, <laughs> it was four stops on the way, I remember. Um yeah, and 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 what and you know what? I had lunch delivered to my seat, so so you can order lunch um, from local train station where it stops at, and then get delivered to your seat, oh. and you can eat there because it's quite smooth. It's not you know, it's not a bit, it's not rocky where you. Eat. So I had a noodle soup, soup noodle uh, on the train. Uh, that was great. Uh. I, I will link uh, <laughs> my acquaintance David Feng in Beijing, who is a complete train freak. Uh, he's a Swiss citizen, but he was from Beijing. I, I don't know. His life story is weird, but he he is, uh, among other things, involved in a project to help unify the English language signage in Chinese railway stations so it's oh. better English. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, I, okay. I will link. Um, um, but, you know. I will link to a video he did uh, travelling um, the uh, China-Lao railway, but he's shown me on other high-speed rail trips. Yes, he's sat a, a cup of tea on the windowsill of the train and it just yes. sits there dead level. <laughs> oh. But, but you know, the high-speed rail project in China is not exactly profit-making no. enterprise. Um, so I'm not sure if the government of Australia is uh, willing to invest. No, the number, every that, time um, we look at the numbers, they don't add up. They will never <laughs> add up. Belt and Road Initiative. So my mom oh. lives in Newcastle and I, I live in Canberra. Oh. If there was a high-speed rail, oh, life would be so much better. Oh, that would be. <laughs> not going to happen, Yun. Belt and Road, China's International Development mm. Investment Program. Now, where's that up to? Because my understanding mm. is a lot of the low-interest loans, at least to some Southeast Asian countries, perhaps to some South Asian ones, they've, they're starting to go past their 
interest-only repayment period and now coming up to where the capital investment will have to be paid off. Now, in the case of the Lau Railway, as the, the Deutsche Welle reporter said, it's a $6 billion project. Okay, China has a 70% ownership of it, but that still means the Lao government has to pay back what's that? a billion dollars plus interest, and their entire GDP is just $15.7 billion. Now, that's US dollars. Uh, I'll throw it into Australian dollars. Laos' GDP is $24 billion Australian, whereas Australia's is 40 times as much, $640 billion, with only three and a bit times the population. So mm. Laos could be in trouble here, as could many countries. Yes, debt uh, is a is a big problem associated with um, Belt and Road, especially yeah. with uh, infrastructure. Really, um, mm. not just Belt and Road, but uh, all types of infrastructure development. I think uh, Belt Road being one of the most well known, uh, you know, initiative. Yes, um, the, I think, but the, but the, the the narrative around um, debt trap, though. Mm-hmm. Um, so debt trap diplomacy has, as a concept, has been thoroughly discredited oh, okay. by many academic studies, um, quite a lot of academic, separate, you know, independent academic studies, including uh, some by Australian scholars. Yet this um, narrative persists, persists, uh, even among, you know, policymakers in Australia who should know better, Um but no, uh, th- this has really stuck, that trial diplomacy. Indeed. I, it must have because I had not realised it had been discredited because the last thing I read was talking about, I don't know where it was, it was it was academics, it wasn't just some random loopy racist columnist somewhere, uh, but pointing out that built and road loans are quite a low interest rate, but the period mm-hmm. before capital has to be paid back and then the penalty period during which if you miss payments, then the penalties kick in and ownership is taken back are shorter than, say, Development Bank of Japan. Sorry, I, I should clarify what, what do I mean first by debt trap diplomacy. Sorry, yes, um, we have. <laughs> we have just assumed people know what we're talking about here. So, so usually when people talk about debt trap diplomacy, so not just, you know, debt, Taking on huge debt, there's a difference. The debt trap diplomacy is talking about the idea that China intentionally give away those loans, mm. knowing that they will never be repaid, and then take over the asset. Yes. Um, as a sort of a diplomatic strategic move. Mm. As opposed to just it being a managed risk and uh, richer nations yeah. are aware that some of the loans may never be repaid, but it's part of an international aid program and seen as a good thing to do it. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, exactly, as opposed to other, you know, other uh, goals uh, uh, or purely financial decisions. Mm. Um, and uh, you, when you read a lot of literature on this, um, the Chinese government it's actually not happy that those loans are not getting paid. <laughs> they actually want to get paid. They want to make money. I saw the figure, and I'll, I'll correct this if if it's wrong in, when, at the end of the podcast, but I think I saw the figure that there's, there's about a trillion dollars outstanding um, in Belt and Road loans. So, you know, I'd want that back. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and, and things like a Belt and Road initiative is not very popular domestically. Ah. Um. But of course, uh, you know, people's uh, uh, ideas, uh, thoughts about this probably doesn't uh, have much effect on Chinese government policy. But uh, for the Chinese people, they 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 are questioning why the government is uh, giving away loans to foreign countries when you know there are poor people in China that they could be helping. Yep, it's the age-old question about international aid, right? We take care of your own mm. first. And I just realised we've forgotten to even say what Belt and Road is. I just assume people know that. The, it, it is uh, China's plan to develop uh, 
trade routes uh, around the world. The the belt is the old Silk Road run, and we now have railway lines running from China all the way mm. uh, to Europe by two different rail routes. You can now send containers on trains without offloading all the way from Beijing to I think Berlin now. It's a, it's amazing. Um, and the the road is a sea road and it goes down through uh, I'm not sure whether which strait we're going through, but past Singapore and around and there is ports being built in Pakistan and in uh, mm. uh, East Africa and, and and so on and so forth. Look look up a map. I, I don't need to list them all. But it's also not very clearly defined. Like they don't have a list of projects that is Belt and Road. Uh, so it's very hard. When, when you have those figures, uh, it's very hard to say, well, that is a Belt and Road project and that's not. <laughs> it's just like Australian um, government saying, these are our nation-building initiatives. <laughs> um, actually, so so before they are focused on those infrastructure projects like ports, mm. um, but nowadays they've been pivoting more towards smaller scale, more agile projects as well and okay. they still – Supposed to be Belt and Road projects, so okay, it's hard and, in, to say. and in in South yeah. Pacific, which is definitely not on the way to Europe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, anything can be Belt and Road projects, <laughs> I think. Okay, so that's continuing. Um, not popular domestically. Why is it seen, therefore, as so important by the PRC leadership? Ah, uh, well. There's several reasons. There's economic reasons, strategic reasons. Uh, obviously, one is that uh, by uh, building those infrastructures, giving loans to these countries, gov- uh, countries, it helps to build a better relationship with uh, recipient countries. That's one. And two, when we talk about those Belt and Road, and when you mentioned the railway to Europe, for example, um, it's a way for China. Actually, so a lot of what China Chinese government is doing is through because it's quite fearful of containment. And, you know, uh, the actions by countries such as the United States in the South China Sea, um, it sees that as a potential that South China Sea trade route could be disrupted. Right. So that's why it's opening up these other trade routes, including to Europe through overland trade routes, which is, you know, more expensive, uh, land is generally more expensive than sea, but it wants to develop that way in case it gets a blockade in South China Sea. So that's um, another reason. And the third one is that, you know, uh, some would say that it's trying to export uh, some of its excess capacity to other countries um, as well. Um, so there's a, quite a lot of different reasons why it's doing this. Okay. I, I did make a note. You hinted at it there. In your report, you referred to the PRC's deeply entrenched sense of victimhood. Now, by that, I assume you mean how other nations, and particularly Western nations, have, uh, you know, in various ways oppressed China all the way going back to the Boxer Rebellion and the Opium Wars of a mm-hmm. century ago, more than a century ago now. Mm. And more recently... This sense of containment fuels that, I guess, is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, of course, uh, you know, people in China they do have understanding, understanding of history through this lens mm. that you know the Western powers um, from the Opium War times uh, they took advantage of China, um, semi-colonized China, um, and they're not to be trusted, basically. Mm. There's a sense that Western countries they they're, they're not to be trusted. Uh, they are they, they want to see China no not they want they want to keep China down. And whereas China for Chinese people they want to be on the top again, understandably. Uh, they want to be on the top in the region, but they feel that Western powers are keeping them down. And the recent uh, you know economic uh, I mean, containment uh, initiatives by United States, for example, restricting. Uh, technology into China that seem as a one, the primary way that the West is containing China right now. And to put Australia into that context, Australia was the first nation to ban Huawei's products uh, from its telecommunication systems, not the United States. Yeah. That's yes. But also from 
China's Chinese government's perspective, it's not just a banning of Huawei, but from their perspective, they believe that China, uh, sorry, Australia has been lobbying other countries to follow its lead as well. Well, we have. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To wrap, you have outlined many challenges for this relationship between Australia and China. Would you dare make a prediction for what might happen in the next few years? Uh, how long? How, how long? Next, uh, how many years? <laughs> ten years. Let's go ten years. Oh, wow. Oh, 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 all right, five. That's not the next few years. Well, five, next ten years. Five, five years. Come on, from Beijing they'll be years. looking the next 50 years. But, yes, the next five years. Uh, yeah, we, we all like to think we can see to, you know, 50 years, 100 years. Yeah, but, uh... <laughs> yeah no, that's, that's not a next thing these days. Next five years. Uh, yeah, the oh, – hmm. Well, I think we'll still have a functional relationship with China. Mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, a, a conflict will occur. So, so basically, if there was direct war that happens, then our trade will stop. Yeah. Right? Uh, I think that that's, uh, that, that's... That's pretty fundamental to a war. Yeah. 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 So, but anything, but short of that, I think we'll continue to trade with China. We'll continue to have a functional relationship with China, but it will be challenging. It will be difficult, um, and I think that will we will have limited decoupling, um, partly because United States will continue uh, its initiatives on technological containment of China, and it will pressure other countries to join in as well. Mm. It will be very interesting to see how that turns out. Yun Zhang, I really must let you go. Thank you so much again for your time. Uh, and maybe we can leave it uh, not quite a year since we speak next. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> My pleasure. And, uh, dear listener, do read. Look, okay, as always, I've linked to many, many things on the website. Uh, but do read Yun's paper uh, about the relationship between Australia and China at the Australian Institute of International Affairs. It's the first or second link on the website, but you can just go to internationalaffairs.org.au and at the time of recording, it's front and centre on the website. It's only nine pages. It's extremely readable. You'll learn stuff. And that's all the edict for now. The 9pmeeting.com slash summer 2023. Please give that a push. You have until the 30th of November. Will there be another Spring Series episode in a week or so? Or won't there? I don't know. But until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.